Amen. Good morning again. Uh, I wanted to take care of a couple of housekeeping items. One is our brother Israel Adi is preaching at Orchard Valley Baptist Church in Aurora this morning. Uh, the pastor there, John Newby, uh, has been the pastor for a few years. It's a smaller church, and uh, just the nature of small church ministry is you tend to preach every week. <laughs> and uh, so he asked me at a, a group of pastors uh, meeting a few months ago, do you have anybody in your church that could come over and just give me a respite once in a while? And I said, yeah, we've got tons of guys who would be willing to do that. So Dave Cartwright, who's with family, I believe, uh, out east this weekend, uh, he preached there in October. Israel preached there, uh, is preaching there right now. And then Dave will go preach there again in January. So uh, potential opportunities for others to preach there as well over the next few months. But I just want to let you know that that's where Israel is today. Mariana is with him. And uh, pray the Lord's encouraging their church through his ministry today. And then I meant to, uh, we meant to include one more verse in a song we sang a few minutes ago, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. The verse we, so we chose that song. <laughs> Clayton and I kind of collaborated on that song. Uh, for the purpose of the verse that we didn't sing. <laughs> so let me read the verse that we didn't sing. Uh, there might have been a few others that John Newton wrote, you know, 250 years ago, besides this one. But this is the one we chose the song for, and it unfortunately did not make the cut. So this is the last verse of glorious things of thee are spoken. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And I chose, you know, I asked Clayton to include that song in the service today because the passage we're talking about uh, alludes to those who are citizens of the city of God, of the kingdom of God. And so uh, those who are citizens of Zion's city are willing to take the derision and the pity of the world because we see that we are the ones who actually enjoy lasting pleasure and lasting joy. So just wanted to read that to you and explain why we sang that song. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we didn't sing that verse, but you can go back and listen to it online later on, perhaps. But please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're entering uh, an extended passage in this book. Really, the rest of chapter 6 is what... Uh, perhaps your Bible marks as the Sermon on the Plain. Perhaps uh, your Bible doesn't say anything about that, but it is a sermon that Jesus preached from here in verse 20 down through verse 49, so the end of chapter 6. And uh, you see at the beginning of chapter 7, it says, after he had finished all his sayings. So that's the conclusion of the sermon there at the end of chapter 6. But we're entering into that sermon here, and uh, ultimately the question we need to ask is, is this the same sermon that uh, Jesus preached in Matthew 5-7 through 7 that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm willing to, to believe that it is the same sermon. And much like if, uh, let's just say Mike uh, Ducanel and I went to a movie together and you asked us what was that movie about, Michael's going to put different emphases on it than I'm going to make. And he's going to explain it perhaps in different ways. But it's still the same movie. We just are explaining it through two different lenses and from two different perspectives. And I think that's what is happening in this passage in Luke 6 and comparing that with Matthew 5 through 7. Same sermon, just presented to us through two different humans under the inspiration of God, equally so in both cases. But I just wanted to give that, that bit of context. This is very likely the same sermon as what you would read in Matthew 5 through 7. 
But Jesus is telling his disciples what they can expect of them, uh, what they can expect of the Christian life, of discipleship itself. Uh, you recall back in chapter five, he he called. Uh, or actually, just just previously in chapter six, it was a few weeks ago though when we preached this passage. In chapter six, he calls these twelve apostles, Simon on down through Judas Iscariot, listed there in that passage, and. Now he's telling them, here's what you signed up for. If you're going to follow me, this is what you're going to get. And what we're going to find out is it may not always be initially pleasant for you to follow Jesus. It may not feel as good as you might have hoped it was going to feel like. So let me read chapter 6, verses 20 through 26, our our text for this morning. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This passage tells us uh, that what we see is not always what we get. What you anticipate to be your reward may not always be your your experience. Perhaps some of you have seen the movie that came out about a decade or so ago called Despicable Me. It's an uh, animated movie, comedy for children and people like me as well. And so uh, this, this story starts off by, uh, by showing a family, presumably from Alabama because they play Sweet Home Alabama, as they get off the bus to go see uh, the, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. And so here they walk past this, this, uh, this shepherd on a field and then come up to the Great Pyramid of Giza. And uh, the child uh, in this family kind of escapes through the security line, security fence, and goes to run up a a wooden platform to get closer to the pyramid. And the security guards chase him up the platform and try and persuade him to stop and come back down, but instead he keeps backing up, backing up, and eventually falls off the platform. And everyone in the crowd watching holds their breath because they think he's coming to his sure death here. And instead he lands on the pyramid and it's actually a balloon and he springs back up in the air and ends up you know, landing on his father who's not paying attention. He's reading a tour guide or something. But everyone is shocked that this pyramid, that they have traveled from around the world, from in that case from Alabama to Egypt to go see is not what they thought it was. And so then it cuts to this newscaster saying, you know, great shock in Egypt today as they find out that the Great Pyramid has been replaced with you know, a giant replica. And then you see these two guys trying to pump the, the balloon back up with a hand pump, trying to get it back to appear like what it once appeared to be. What we see is not always what we get. What we expect uh, is, is, may not be what it appeared to be initially. In other words, uh, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Maybe that's one way we can say this. 
But this story demonstrates that we assume that what we see is what we get. If you see an apple, you're going to get an apple. You see a car, you're going to get a quality car. But we all know that you can go buy a car and it turns out to be a lemon, something that you're not going to want. You assume that when you spend a lot of money on an item, you're going to get quality merchandise. We assume that when we marry someone, that person will be the person of our dreams who will put up with all of our own faults without having any of their own. So we see a beautiful young lady or a handsome young man and draw conclusions of what that person's going to be, and we're often surprised. The Bible itself is an ironic book. It seems that the wicked often prosper in the Bible, and the faithful often seem cursed, seem like they're getting the raw end of the deal. And entire psalms are dedicated to this. Entire passages of the Bible show this irony. One theologian named Greg Beale writes that it seems that the faithful who try to pursue godliness and justice seem only to be cursed in this life. Nevertheless, Scripture asserts of such saints that even if they appear to be cursed on the earthly level, they still possess spiritual blessings both in the present and for eternity. In other words, the ironic principle associated with the lives of faithful believers is that you can't judge a book by its cover. That is, adversity, affliction, or failure in everyday life is no indicator of the nature of a person's heart and relationship with God. So once again, this passage is answering the question, what will it be like for me to follow Jesus? What can I expect if I become a disciple? One of these people who's willing to follow Him wherever He goes and share His teaching with these multitudes who are following Him. And Jesus answers that question, what is discipleship like, by basically saying to them, what you see is not what you get. This passage assumes the existence of what we could call the good life. And I will just tell you, my parents didn't have to tell me as a child. Just so you know, there are two ways you could live. You could have the good life or you could have the bad life. And we just want to teach you, Eric, you're going to want to follow the good life. No one has ever had to teach anyone else that. We inherently desire what is good. We inherently desire, in other words, what Jesus calls blessed. We want the good life. And everyone in the world is pursuing it with everything that they have. And this is what motivates people to do what they do, to say what they say, and to think what they think. To get the good and to leave the bad behind. So the question isn't, well, Christians, you know, the, maybe, we, maybe not necessarily a question, but the, the comparison isn't Christians aren't the people who pursue the bad life while others pursue the good life. No, we're all pursuing the good life. The question is, how do you get the good life? How do you achieve what is desirable? And Jesus says it's actually very different than what you would expect because what you see is not what you get. So the Bible's answer to you know, how do you achieve the good life is radically different from the way the world is going to answer that question. So I had someone tell me recently that he went to this party that was characterized. He was an unbeliever and uh, he's one of our neighbors. And he told me, I went to this party and it was characterized, and I'm not going to tell you what it was characterized by, but it was characterized by evil. It was characterized by frivolity and wickedness and pursuing the good life in the way that makes most sense to someone who has no concept of who God is or what God is like. The Bible says, though, that we live the good life by following Jesus. It just may not look like the good life 
in this life. That's the surprising part. We live the good life by believing him and obeying him and submitting every part of our lives to him. So we're going to see in this passage, in these, these uh, verses 20 through 26, three comparisons between those who follow Jesus and those who are part of the world, those who reject Jesus and his call in their lives. We see that those who follow Jesus have a different experience, a different set of values, and a different outcome. A different experience in this life particularly, a different set of values, and a different outcome. And so we read, first of all, about this experience. And this isn't going verse by verse in order, but it is uh, taking the, the two parts of this passage, the blessings and the woes, uh, kind of side by side in many ways. And so those who follow Jesus have a different experience. Perhaps the experience for Christians is, is that they are going to be characterized as those who are poor. And the initial question that probably comes to your mind right away is, well, what does it mean to be poor or Who is truly poor? Because I think we could probably all find people who, in terms of money, are dirt poor and utterly reject Jesus Christ, want nothing to do with him. Perhaps because they actually blame him for the circumstances that they're in. They blame God for making them poor, and so they want nothing to do with him. They shake their fist at him, and they say, I want nothing to do with this Jesus person because he's given me this terrible, destitute lot in my life. And then maybe you also know people who are rich, who have the world's goods in terms of money, who have a lot of money in their bank account, but are exceptionally generous and kind and Christ-like, and they love to bless other people. Surely that's not the kind of person that Jesus is saying is the person who's going to be cursed because they're rich. So what does it mean to be poor? And I think when we read this passage in light of the way that Matthew interprets this in Matthew 5, verse 12, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are indeed humble before God. Their whole disposition in life is that they stand before God with a brokenness, realizing their spiritual bankruptcy. We often sing in Rock of Ages, naked come uh, to thee for dress. I have nothing on my own, in other words. Helpless, look to thee for grace, we sing. I think that's what it means to be spiritually poor. That we have this, this inherent sense that I am broken before God. Now Luke does talk about people who are truly impoverished later on in this, light, in this, in this book. And he, this is the second time he's used this word in this book as we read back in chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus preaching there as well. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But again there, he wasn't excluding the rich. In fact, we, we assume that some of Jesus' followers, such as Joseph of Arimathea later on in the Gospel of Luke, were actually quite wealthy. And we know that Levi had built up wealth for himself, legally or not, uh, ethically or not. And so he calls people like Levi to follow him. And so this isn't just saying, I came to preach good news to those who live uh, in homeless shelters or in tents underneath the Eisenhower. We're here to preach good news to those who recognize their spiritual impoverishment, we could say. And that is to contrast with those who are currently rich. And he says, woe to you, or you should be pitied because you have 
impending judgment coming your way, for you have received your consolation. For the unbeliever, this life truly is their best life now. For those who follow Jesus faithfully, though, everything that happens to you in this life is still the worst life you will ever have. The worst experience you will ever have is in this life. And so this, this passage is calling us to consider the different experience that perhaps in this life you will be poor because you recognize your spiritual impoverishment. But that's better than being rich now and having the best life you could possibly have in this life. Jesus also says that, that those who are blessed, those who are in a condition of great blessing from God, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And so again, perhaps this is referring to people who go from day to day not knowing, like Jesus himself, where they're going to lay their head down or where they're going to get their next meal. Perhaps that's what it's referring to, but again, the way that Matthew writes this down in uh, his version of the Beatitudes, uh, two Gospels previous to this one, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are pursuing God and His ways, who seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. And Jesus says that this is far better. It is far better to be hungry now and to be satisfied later than to be full now and hungry later. In terms of experience, it is better to be one who is weeping now because in the future you shall laugh. Perhaps your life because you follow Jesus, is full of tremendous sorrow and tremendous heartache. And that comes at us in different forms, doesn't it? Perhaps it comes uh, in the form of your loved ones. You teach them the gospel. You pray with them. You catechize them. You instill in them the, the right habit, the right liturgy of going to church every single Sunday and maybe even every single Wednesday and maybe even every single Sunday night, depending on the church you're in, and you instill in your children, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, and then you weep and weep and weep for days because they walk away. and They say, I want nothing to do with you. You have raised me in a toxic environment. Jesus says, blessed are those who weep now. For you shall laugh. There is joy in the morning, Psalm 126 tells us. And it is far better to have the experience of weeping now than laughing now. And maybe you would say, well, I mean, I thought a sense of humor was a good thing. And yes, it is. Jesus isn't condemning having a good sense of humor, laughing, and having a good time in this life in, in a way that honors the Lord. And in fact, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes that we preached through this summer, we frequently saw Solomon encouraging us, the Lord through Solomon encouraging us to eat and drink and be merry, to enjoy the life that God has given you, enjoy the gifts that God has given you. But chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, tells you to do all of that within the context of fearing God and keeping His commandments. So there's nothing negative about laughing now. But I think when Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, your worst day is still yet to come. Whereas for those who follow Jesus, your worst day is, is in this life. When he says those who laugh now, I think he's referring to those who just make it their, their MO to just be caught up in frivolity. 
their way of living is just this life is all there is, so I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. You only live once, so just enjoy it now. Uh, take in all the good you can, eat all the food you can, go to all the parties you can, get all the money you can, and all the toys you can. And really, the way that children approach Christmas, many children, you know, most children, I guess we could say, approach Christmas of I just want more and more and more gifts, we as adults do the same thing. Our gifts are just more expensive and more sophisticated. And so those who laugh now are those who are pursuing all the joys you could possibly get your hands around and just treasuring them up now. And Jesus says, if that is your experience, that you are going to make that your calling card in life, if I'm going to laugh now, I'm going to have all the joy I can possibly get now, your worst day is still ahead of you. What you see, a person weeping, a person who's poor, a person who's hungry, may not be what you get. And so the experience of those who follow Jesus also involves being poor, it involves being hungry, it involves weeping, and it involves an undesirable reputation. In verse 22, people hate you. People exclude you. They keep you out of the public square because of your Christian virtues, your Christian values, your Christian message. They revile you. They spurn your name as evil. As I thought of what it looks like for someone to revile someone else, I thought of the recent Bears and Packers game. where The Bears are hanging on by a thread to try and beat the evil number 12. I won't even say his name. And he scores a touchdown. And what does he do? He screams at the Bears fans, all who will hear him. I own you! I own you! I've always owned you! And he just kept going on with that. Just like, just be quiet. Just hit the mute button. Don't watch. Turn the channel. I don't want anything to do with him. And he's reviling Bears fans. And when you read this passage, you say, so what? Who cares? You can revile me for the teams I cheer for all you want. You can even revile me because of the person I worship and the person I follow all you want. The reason it's okay to be spurned and reviled and excluded and hated is because you actually fall in good company when that happens. You fall in the company of Jesus himself. You fall in the company of Joseph. You fall in the company of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah and like Elisha, like Isaiah and like Jeremiah, like Amos and like Micah, people who are hated because of their message and people saying, get out of here. Go preach your stinking message somewhere else. And Amos basically said, God told me to say this. I'm here on a mission from him. And whether you like me or not, it doesn't really matter. And that's what Jesus says. Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers, these people who are reviling you, they did that to the prophets as well. And it's actually better to have unbelieving people calling you crazy and saying you're out of your mind and saying your message is hateful and discriminatory and so exclusive, it's better to have them say that because you're preaching a faithful gospel than to have them like you because you don't say anything with an edge to it as a Christian. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." It's actually better to have people not like you because of your stand for Christ. Now, we need to be clear. We want people 
to be offended by the gospel, not by us. Not by the way we are aggressive and antagonistic in the way that we share the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough. The gospel tells you that the God who created you, you rebelled against him. And his wrath is against you. And the only remedy to that is you acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy before him. Not you throwing all the money you possibly can onto the table and saying, okay, now take me. No, no, no. I mean, that's very offensive to the world. So let that be the offensive part. This is similar. It feels like Luke, who wrote the, the book of Acts as well, includes some examples of what it looks like to be excluded and be hated and be reviled because of the message that you preach. Not because of the way you do it, not because you're an offensive person. But one that came to mind is Stephen, where he tells these people, you stiff-necked people, this is in Acts 7, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. There's that reference to the fathers. Those who hated God's people long ago. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? These were the people who were presumably the faithful Israelites. That's who the fathers were. But they were living however they wanted to live. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Jesus is the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And what did these people do? When they heard these things from Stephen, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, who's also referred to here in Luke 6, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, because his, his message was so offensive. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when your message, the gospel, offends people. It's better to be offensive than to just tell people, you'll be fine with God. Just go to church once in a while, give a little money once in a while, and you'll be fine with God. Well, that sounds pretty good to people. I can do that. I can achieve a certain level of spirituality and put a mask of spirituality on and I can be okay with God then. And Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you because what you say has no bite to it. We want to be offensive because of the gospel, not because of our political stances, not because of our sports allegiances. Let the gospel stand on its own two feet. The gospel that God created us. We rebelled against him. Jesus came to save us from that rebellion. And our response then is to repent and believe the gospel. And if you have never done that, we would love to talk to you about that after the service. If you would say, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. He sounds so offensive and so antagonistic. Well, let's talk about that as well. Let's talk about who Jesus really was and uh, you know, the tract we're going to give out to to our neighbors here in, our, in this church neighborhood, in this community, those workers at City Hall and the police, we're giving them one that says on the cover, who is Jesus? Because that is the most important question. If people get that wrong, they get everything wrong. So those who follow Jesus have a different experience than those who live for the world. Those who follow Jesus also have a different set of values. Those who follow Jesus value what is invisible rather than what is visible. That's why it sounds appealing when we read, 
Yours is the kingdom of God. In other words, you are a citizen of the city of God. That doesn't sound valuable to you at all if what you value is physical and visible and right before your eyes. But if you are valuing what is invisible, then the kingdom of God sounds very valuable, actually. We also value what is lasting rather than what is temporal. We would rather have eternal filling rather than temporal filling in terms of hunger. We would rather have eternal money rather than temporal money, if you want to put it that way. And we would rather value, we we value what is spiritual rather than what is physical. We value God's kingdom. We rather value God's message rather than the things we can put our hands on now, the things that we can touch, things like the pyramid in Giza, which really is just a balloon. And those who follow Jesus have a different outcome than those who follow the world, who walk in the world system. The outcome of those who follow Jesus is citizenship in God's city. And so, church, please connect the dots here. If you are primarily a citizen of God's city, that means you are only secondarily a citizen of this city of this country, of this world. You're only secondarily living here. You are a pilgrim passing through. You are a stranger. You are a sojourner. And the world does everything it can to make you think that you're the weird one by living for another place. A theologian named David Wells, he's now retired, but taught at Gordon-Conwell in Boston, he wrote that worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Dane Ortland, who uh, long before he wrote Gentle and Lowly, wrote a book on Jonathan Edwards. I just need to find this quote here. My notes printed in a way I wasn't expecting, so it's not where I thought it was going to be. Uh, he writes uh, this way about, about worldliness and about how we as Christians are living for a different place. He writes, The life of an unbeliever is unavoidable acquiescence to the inertia of this world, like a jellyfish in the current. That's the life of an unbeliever. You just go with the flow. The life of a disciple of Jesus, on the other hand, having been granted a new love, is constantly swimming against the tide. Picture two descending escalators side by side. All right, They're both going down. One is filled with people standing still, slowly descending, the way most of us go down escalators at the mall or at a stadium. These are those who belong to the world. The other is dotted with people running up the descending escalator, strenuously, excuse me, strenuously trying to go faster up than it wants to take them down. These people, the ones who are running up the down escalator, are the pilgrims who belong to Christ. Christian pilgrims set their faces like flint toward the heavenly city. And whether the 10,000 little adversities that wash into their life as the years roll on. We are people who are living for the citizen, as citizens of God's city, living for a place that you can't see right now, but that is far better than this life. This passage is describing a rags-to-riches story, and what we would have to say is that Jesus Himself is the true rags-to-riches story. You think of this person who essentially was poor, who essentially was hungry, who essentially wept now 
for his people, for his own, and then was truly hated and excluded and reviled and spurned because of what he said, because of what he did. But then he, I mean, Cinderella has nothing on him. Then he truly was exalted and magnified. And one day, every knee will bow before him. And so do that now. Don't wait until just that day. Bow before him now. Let him dictate your whole life. Let his word, which is God speaking to you, let his word tell you how to live. Of course, we do want people to listen to us. It's not you know, necessarily a blessing that people exclude you. It's not necessarily a good sign if people don't listen to you. But if they're going to exclude us, it's because we want it to be because of what we preach, not because of necessarily the way that we preach, the, the, maybe a negative vibe that we give off. Just let God's Word, let the offensiveness of the Gospel be what is offensive. So those who are following Jesus have a different experience, have a different set of values, have a different outcome. That outcome is you're a citizen of God's city. You get lasting satisfaction instead of temporary satisfaction, unending joy, and a great reward. But it doesn't seem like that. The world would say, you guys are out of your minds. It's like Don Quixote who's out there fighting invisible enemies and people just stare at him and go, he is out of his mind. And that's the way that the world would look at us as Christians. You don't even know what you're doing. You're wasting your life. We would say, no, you are. And so don't do that. Follow Jesus instead of wasting your life. I quoted Greg Beale earlier. He writes, we must come to God's word continually to be continually shocked out of our spiritual anesthesia because the world is just continually washing anesthesia over us through its set of values and through its experiences, and what it says is part of the good life. And so we as God's people are living for another world, and I would urge you to do that, church. Lay up your treasure in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. And one way that you can show that your treasure is somewhere else is by associating yourself with other ordinary Christians, people who are populating this room right here, it is far better to have the cell phone number for someone who sits on the opposite side of the church from you that you don't really know than it is to have the cell phone number for some celebrity that you would love to be able to contact at, at any moment's notice. It's so much better to be able to text Michael Lesigno than to text LeBron James. I would think anyway. And so associate with those who are following Jesus and let them be your guide and let them keep pushing you toward the middle when you want to stray toward the outside and become anonymous to other Christians in our church. Don't let yourself become anonymous. Don't let yourself be someone who just walks in the door and then walks out and you come back the next Sunday and you do it again, but you haven't had any interaction with any other Christians. That's not how Christians live. Christians are fighting for one another, alongside of one another, because we realize our hearts are so deceptive. And if you give me a week on my own, I'm probably going to sin in terrible ways and in ways that make me think maybe it's better just to live for the world than it is to live for Jesus. We need each other to keep pushing each other and propelling each other toward Christ-likeness. When it's time for you to move away, 
And I know that for some of us that's going to be the case, whether it's because you graduate or because you are transferred for your work or something along those lines. When it's time for you to move away, choose your next church based on truth, not on appearance. You know, what's true of a Christian that we, we look, you know, kind of despicable, despicable me, interestingly enough. Uh, we, we're kind of poor, we're kind of hungry, kind of roughshod. Who cares? That's what we look like as Christians. That's often what churches look like as well. So don't go for the church that necessarily has all the bells and smells and whistles. Go for the church that preaches the truth. And let that be the guide. And who cares if they have kind of torn up pews and old hymnals with pages falling out of them and the pastor wears suit coats. Who cares? Just go to the church where they preach the Word of God. Because that's what's going to change people's lives. It doesn't matter if it's the most friendly church around, the most appealing looking church around, if they have the best music around. We hope you choose a church based on where they preach the truth. Don't envy the world, church. That would be another application for us. Don't look at the people who get to do whatever they want to do and not have any consequences from it and assume that they have the good life. They do not. And I think in moments of clarity and honesty, they would tell you that. But even if they're convinced that they do have the good life right now, it is only the good life right now. And Jesus says that the good life is not what you expect. Dane Ortland writes again, By the standards of Hollywood and Wall Street, Christians are of all people most to be pitied. But bank accounts and social standing are not the truest measuring bar. The Word of God is the measuring bar. The day after Thanksgiving, my boys and I uh, were making gingerbread houses with my mother-in-law. And all three of them did an outstanding job. And then somebody said, well, hey, there's one more if you want to make it. They bought, we bought a kit with four gingerbread houses in it. So there's one more. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So I came over and I tried to break it and I snapped it in the wrong spot. And my gingerbread house wasn't even a house. It was just gingerbread tiles, basically, stacked on top of each other. And so my kids, my four-year-old son, was able to build a better gingerbread house than I was. And I was like, aha, now I have an illustration for Sunday. (laughs) That is what our lives look like to the world. There was nothing flashy. I mean, uh, literally, all I did was stack the tiles together. That That was my gingerbread house. My kids had the nice decorations, beautifully spaced out candy and everything else. Theirs looked shiny, theirs looked sparkly and delicious, and mine looked like a piece of trash. And maybe the world would say, your life, your life is a joke because you follow Jesus. You're one of his disciples. What a waste of time. And what I would say is, what you see is not what you get. This life is not all there is. So value what's invisible. Value what's spiritual. Value what's eternal rather than what's temporal. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want your word to be our measuring stick. Not those who live in Hollywood, not those who live in Washington, not those who live in Silicon Valley, not those who work on Wall Street. Their values are always going to be different than ours. And so, Lord, as people seeking to faithfully walk with you, we pray that you would transform our minds by your word, that we would truly let your word wash over us. 
with greater frequency than the waves of the world's anesthesia that are washing over us. We pray you would help us to view life through your lens and to live for your glory rather than for our temporal comfort. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.